all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Joining us today, you're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And I'm broadcasting from a little different spot today. I'm on campus at our vaccine clinic today, but I am happy to hop on and talk with you guys today about springing into wellness. Um, There are some different things that I want to talk about today, like pollen and allergies, as well as some weather safety things. But I'd love to hear from you today. If you have a health and wellness question, now's your time. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email us, fit at mpbonline.org. Or you can go over to Facebook to Healthy Habits with Josie and drop your question there. I have a thread open today asking about any questions that you might have. So if you've stepped outside in the last week, um, you have probably noticed that lovely dusting of pollen on, on your cars. Um, and really on everything. Uh, and then it rains and turns it into a little green river that runs down the, the side of the road. And that pollen is um, wreaking havoc on, on some folks. And that can be particularly distressing when we're also in the middle of uh, COVID with similar symptoms. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between uh, allergies and COVID symptoms, as well as things that we can can use and try for um, for allergies. So one of the kind of big things is, do you normally have seasonal allergies? Does the pollen normally bother you? Um, and if so, it's not unexpected that you would also have that problem again, this time of the year. If you don't normally have allergies and the pollen doesn't normally bother you and you have um, some respiratory symptoms, then that would give me a little bit more more pause to think perhaps maybe we have a cold or um, COVID, something like that. But there are some kind of crossover symptoms, Um, you know, uh, runny nose, although not as common with COVID, is still there. sore throat. Um, you can have a sore throat with allergies because the the drainage from your sinuses kind of drips down the back of your throat. And you have that kind of post-nasal drip um, that can cause um, some sore throat there. Um, but you should not run fever with allergies. Okay? So fever would be a check mark in the perhaps it's a cold or a sinus infection or something like COVID. 
The other is that loss of taste and smell, which is usually pretty doggone unique to um, COVID, um, unless you have a really bad cold and your nose is super stopped up there. Um, If you're ever in doubt, always go get tested. And you can also have more than one thing at a time, right? You could have allergies and um, some COVID um, at the same time. So if you have any fever, any... um, you know, chills, muscle aches, loss of taste and smell. It's it's a good idea to go get checked out there. Another thing is the treatments that we do for allergies usually probably aren't going to help you feel much better with COVID. Um, Itchy, watery eyes, itchy nose, itchy throat, those kinds of things are pretty common with uh, pollen-related allergies. And so we can try an antihistamine there. That would be one of the most common treatments for, um, for allergies. And so some common ones, Benadryl, of course, Benadryl can make you sleepy, or um, you might be in that smaller group of folks that have what we call a paradoxical uh, reaction to the Benadryl, and it makes you uh, super energetic and kind of keyed up. Um, But most folks have um, sleepiness associated with that. So if you got to go about your, your day, Um, That might not be the best choice there. Some of the newer antihistamines like Claritin or Zyrtec, um, Zizol, those types of medications tend to be less sedating um, and make you not as drowsy. But if you've never taken one before um, or you're going to try a new one, try that out. Before, when you are able to stay kind of at home, you know, you don't want to pop one and then go get in the car. It might make you sleepy. I have a few patients who have told me that those medicines make them sleepy as well. Um, if you're more of a chronic allergy sufferer, then it might be time for nasal sprays. Um, there are some nasal antihistamine sprays. There are also some nasal steroid sprays. Um, that can be useful, um, especially if you know that you're an allergy sufferer this time of year. Those take a little longer to kick in and work, and so maybe kind of starting them a week or so before um, before the pollen gets really, really bad there. So that's kind of the quick and dirty on um, on pollen going on these days. The other is if you're really, really sensitive to it and you've spent um, a lot of time outdoors, when you come home, don't like sit on your furniture in those clothes. Don't get in the bed um, with those clothes because they've got pollen on them. Go ahead and take those off. Um, take a shower, that kind of stuff before you get in the bed. That way you're not transferring all of that pollen from outside into your um, your living a- your living quarters, your living area, and kind of constantly exposing yourself to that. So those are just some tips as we enter into pollen season here in um, in the South. And you can't talk about the spring in the South without without also talking about severe weather and tornadoes. We have done multiple shows in the past on disaster preparedness and making sure that you're ready in an emergency situation. And you can get those, um, you know, the full episodes of those uh, anywhere you get podcasts. You can search up um, Southern Remedy uh, on those podcast platforms. But probably one of the most important things you can do is have a way to get um, severe weather alerts. So a NOAA weather radio, um, the apps on your phone, uh, I know Rankin County just released uh, um, an updated kind of service 
And so they text me now when, um, when there's a severe warning for my area. So I get a text message and you can get it by text or, um, email lots of different ways there, but make sure you have a reliable way to get, uh, get weather related information, weather in the South turns severe very quickly. It's very warm here and that warmth feeds into those storms and you'll have things spin up very, very quickly there. Um, the other is know your safety plan before those things strike. Know where you're going to go. Um, lowest level of your home, interior room, away from windows and doors as much as possible. Um, and communicate those things with all of your family members, especially your kiddos, so they know where to go when these things start Um, start to happen. And then we've talked about that emergency kit that you should have. Um, You can find the list of things that go in an emergency kit at ready.gov. There's a great list there. Um, If we lose power, those types of things, things you want to have on hand to make your life a little bit easier, like batteries and um, ready to eat foods or foods that um, need very little done to them, um, non-perishable items, water, those kinds of things. So making sure you have what you need in your little kit. And it can be just a, you know, a plastic tote that has those things um, added into there. But remember that three days worth of supplies is more than you think. And so um, when we started building ours, we would just like every time we went to the grocery store, we would just pick up a little bit extra. Because if you try and kind of build that kit from scratch all at once, it can be kind of pricey. But if you just start to pick up a few extra cans of things along the way and add those into your kit, it's a little bit more economical way of doing that. But again, that list of things um, to go on, go in your kit, um, ready.gov is a great spot um, to do there. One thing that before I started um, working with the disaster preparedness folks that I didn't really think about was a whistle, um, to have a whistle in that kit. That way, if you had some structural damage to your home or something like that, there would be a way for people to kind of hear you if they were um, looking for you in uh, any of those areas there. So it's a great uh, little tip to kind of have in there. If you're going to do canned food, make sure it's either a pop top on the canned food or that you have a um, hand can opener um, and not just an electric can opener because that's just going to foil your plans there if you uh, are stocked up on cans and no way to open it there. Um, And, you know, make sure it's things that you and your family enjoy to eat. Don't just pack it full of sardines um, unless you don't like your family and then you want to just eat eat fish for for canned fish for three days, but put up a variety of things in there. Don't forget those fruits and vegetables and don't forget water. Um, especially if you have a, um, a baby, don't forget to think about the water. If you're using formula that you may need to reconstitute that powdered, um, formula there. All those things are important as you're building that emergency kit. And make sure you kind of review it and make sure things aren't expiring and swap them out as needed. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. 
For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for joining us today on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. And we're springing into wellness today and answering your health-related questions. If you have one for us, you can give me a call. My number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. As always, you can email us. That address is fit at mpbonline.org, or you can hop on over to my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, and drop your comment or question there. And we've had several that have come in. Um, we've had we got a couple that are food related, um, and then one that is vaccine related, and then an allergy one. So we'll start with that allergy question, uh, since that kind of piggybacks right into what we were talking about before this show. Um, and it asked, and it was actually from you, Kevin, asked if you can develop allergies later on. Is it is it normal to develop allergies later on in life? Well, it really depends on what you've been exposed to, right? So if you are not kind of native to Mississippi and you move here as an adult, you may find yourself being more symptomatic from those allergies just because you may not have been exposed to that particular type of pollen or whatever it is you're allergic to um, before. But you can develop an allergy um, to lots of different things, even if you've been exposed to things in the past. Um not pollen related, but just if we're talking about allergies in general, you know, I have a really life-threatening reaction to ibuprofen or an allergy to ibuprofen. And that did not develop until I was well into my thirties. I had taken it plenty um, in my life. So if you ever are, you know, have a question about whether you're, you know, allergic to something, you know, talk to your regular healthcare provider, see if they'll get you in with an allergy and immunologist and get skin tested for things um, and see, see what's going on there. All right. We have a question about um, the shingles vaccine. So since I had shingles in December, how long should I wait to get the Shingrix vaccine? I've heard three months, six months, but CDC website says no waiting necessary help. All right. Well, it's excellent question. And you absolutely should get the vaccine if you have had shingles. Um, and the CDC website is um, is accurate. There is no kind of predefined waiting period. You just want to make sure that you're not you don't still have an active rash. Like the rash has gone away. You don't have any lesions, anything like that. Um, you had it in December, so you're sitting at you know at least three months out from that, depending on what day you had it. Um, so you probably should be good to go um, on, on getting that. You just want to not you know not have active. Um, lesions. Um, so, uh, kind of go for it. Um, 
Shingrix is a two-dose series um, separated by um, two to six months between those um, series there. So, you know, take a little little bit of time before you're fully vaccinated there. Um, but there is no kind of predetermined um, waiting uh, system there for that. That was a really good question. All right. Uh, we've got a couple of food-related questions that we'll go to. Um, and of course, you know, I can talk all day long about some food So um, and, and food and nutrition. And the question asks about making food taste good without salt. And how do you do it? She says she's struggling to make food taste good without salt. And so my first question there is, are we talking about absolutely no added salt. You know, is that the the diet that your healthcare provider has recommended? Because that's going to be a little bit trickier um, to, to implement. If we're talking about just a low sodium diet, um, which is about 1500 milligrams of sodium, um, whereas the average person that's not on a sodium restricted diet should keep their sodium intake to 2300 milligrams or less, which I know most of you are thinking, well, what the heck is that? What's 2,300 milligrams? Well, that's about a teaspoon, okay, of um, sodium per day. So if we're talking about a low sodium or reduced sodium diet, as well as just trying to keep under that 2,300 uh, milligram mark, we have to think about the types of foods we are choosing because some of them are just going to be inherently salty in the way that they are prepared. Um, about 75 to 80% of the salt or the sodium that we consume as Americans does not come from the salt shaker or even seasoning our food with salt while we cook it. Um, it comes from the sodium that is in packaged products. Um, so think about things like chips and pickles and crackers and popcorn and soups and stocks and seasoning packets and frozen dinners and those kinds of things. That is where the bulk of the sodium in our diet comes from. So kind of the number one you know, tip for making food taste good while also watching uh, sodium is to start with as, as least processed as you're able to. Um, now, I also live in the real world, and I know that sometimes um, these things that are less uh, processed are also more expensive and you can't make that fit into your budget. So we do the best that we can and we make swaps that, um, that help, right? So, um, let's say all we have access to is, is canned items, right? Um, well, can, uh, sodium reduced vegetables are oftentimes more pricey, right? Um, so get what you can afford there and drain them and rinse them several times to help pull some of that um, salt off. About 28% of that salt, um, it will uh, come off when you um, rinse them that way. And then think about things that you can't do that to, right? Like a soup or a stock. You can't drain and rinse a soup or a stock or you just... You just poured your soup down the drain, and that's definitely not cost effective. So if we have, um, if we're trying to decide between buying sodium-reduced veggies or sodium-reduced stock, go ahead and spend the extra money on that sodium-reduced stock or soup 
um, uh, because you can't drain those things there. Um, I had a kind of secondary question that came in and asked, why is there so much sodium in those packaged items? Well, they're make them shelf stable, right? So um, preservatives to, to help with shelf stability there, um, as well as salt is just a, it's a flavor enhancer, right? So um, they kick that up in there to make those packaged products um, taste good as well there. All right. Um, the second tip is think about things that um, you can add to your food that give lots and lots of flavor without adding salt, right? So herbs are one way. And when I say herbs, I think people automatically assume I mean uh, fresh herbs. And I, I mean, I love fresh herbs. I um, have a little herb garden uh, that I grow. Um, I still actually have rosemary. It's very, very hardy that survived um, the ice uh, from this past February. Um, it's still just out there kicking, um, as are my chives. But it does not have to be fresh herbs. It can be dried herbs. Um, you can pick up dried herbs um, at the dollar store for a dollar. The, the key to getting the most flavor out of those is kind of crushing them in your hand before you add them to your food, right? They're dehydrated. Um, and so we kind of want to wake the the seasoning up a little bit, wake up some of the oils that are in that. So I just pour my dried uh, herbs in my in the palm of my hand and I take my thumb and I just rub them right, in the palm of my hand and it kind of crushes them and, and wakes them up a little bit before I add them in to my food. Some good ones to keep on hand, um, oregano, um, that goes great in Italian food and in um, kind of more... Uh, Tex-Mexy type food. Um, parsley is a good one to keep. Basil as well. Um, those are probably the three dried herbs that I keep uh, in the cabinet the most. If you can only afford one, get you to just get a mixed herb, like a dried Italian herb, because it's going to have some oregano and some basil and some parsley and lots of different things um, kind of mixed into it there. If you are growing um your veggie, your kind of herbs in the garden, and you have a surplus of those, you can always um, harvest those, puree them down a little bit and freeze them in an ice cube and then pop those out of the ice cube tray and pop them in a, a Ziploc ba baggie and keep them in the freezer. And then you just toss them into you know your soups or stews or sauces or whatever you're using there um, for some added flavor. Uh, my next favorite thing to season with is garlic. Um, and, and for here, I do like fresh garlic, but you could absolutely use garlic powder, not garlic salt. Garlic salt is going to be garlic powder mixed with salt. And so that would not be a low sodium option there. But just some fresh garlic um, really, really flavors things nicely. Um, and then citrus, like lemon, lime orange, those kinds of things. Taking the zest off of those as well as the juice is a great way to add lots and lots of flavor um, to your meals without having to add a whole lot of salt. Okay? Um, if you start with really unprocessed things, if you're just starting with vegetables, um, then it's okay to use a little bit of salt. You don't want to dump, you want to add a small amount and then taste your food and see, um, see where to go from there. I can't 
stress enough how important it is to taste your food after every bit of seasoning so that you get the um, the amount of salt right there. Um, but there are lots of different ways to add different flavorings in there. And then if you're just looking for a more conventional um, seasoning pack or something like that to use, Mrs. Dash has lots of different um flavorings out there, lots of different varieties out there. And those are usually at least reduced sodium, but usually um, um, salt free there. So that's some some options that you have there. If anybody's listening and has a, uh, a tip or a trick that they like to do to season their food while keeping it, keeping the sodium uh, low, I'd love to hear that today. And if you have a question about nutrition or really anything health related, I'd love to answer that question for you today as well. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lewis, Carl Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and today we're answering your questions about health and wellness in our Spring Into Wellness series. And um, before I get back into questions, which you can leave over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, or give us a call, one eight seven seven mpb ring I just want to take a minute and thank our supporters, our listeners who uh, support this show. We had a great, successful fundraising week last week, and I just want to thank everybody for supporting us here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're why we get to do what we do and bring these things to you. So thank you for that. All right, I have a question that says, what is the deal with the fascination with making and consuming bone broth and drinking collagen? Um, Can it really decrease arthritic pains and ease symptoms of fibromyalgia? So a little bit of a loaded question. So let's kind of start to unpack some of it a little bit there and talk about what we mean by bone broth. Um, So um, bone broth is usually a slow uh, simmered broth that includes the bones from either, you know, one type of animal or uh, multiple different types uh, of animals there. And as you simmer those things for a long amount of time, then the um, kind of the collagen starts to come out of those bones. It gets a little bit more gelatinous um, as well. And then the thought is that uh, some of the vitamins and minerals like the calcium, the phosphorus, those kinds of things will also go into the, into the broth. Now, how much of that actually occurs in particular with the, you know, the calcium, the magnesium, the phosphorus, those kinds of things is up for debate. Um, it depends on, you know, how, 
you know, the quality of the bone and those kinds of things. A lot of people mix types of animals in the bone broth to try and, and get as many nutrients from that as possible. Um, if we are looking for hard scientific evidence, right, and when I say hard scientific evidence, I mean a really well done, um, randomized and controlled study looking at this. The science is just not there um, to th- to support that just consuming collagen um, helps the body make collagen. So um, collagen is a protein and it can be the body makes it so we can absolutely support our body's ability to build healthy proteins by consuming um, proteins. But just the act of of drinking or consuming collagen, the science is just not quite there um, to convince me that that's a super, you know, a super miracle something, um, which I don't really think there's a super miracle something at all in terms of Uh, of food. It's about the dietary pattern that you do. Now, the second part says, you know, can they really decrease arthritic pain and ease symptoms of fibromyalgia? Well, let's think about if you have also drastically changed your diet, your, what you're eating in a normal way. A lot of these uh, kind of fad diets or, you know, fad products, those kinds of things do make you feel better because you're also eliminating other things. If you were eating a lot of processed foods, Right. And you've switched to now doing, you know, bone broth or even, um, you know, just regular, largely unprocessed foods, you're going to feel better. Those things are going to decrease inflammation. And so you're you're just going to feel better overall. Um, But it might not necessarily be whatever this product is that you've added in. It's the pattern that you've cleaned up and changed that makes that makes you feel better there. Um, so, you know, I'm a plant-based eater and uh, fully support the use of um, at least plant-predominant dietary patterns to treat um, arthritis, to ease symptoms of autoimmune illnesses and those types of things. Um, so I am I am not on the bone broth uh, train um, in support for that. Uh, but I also, you know, if you want to consume that every now and then, then that's fine. But don't don't paint it to be a miracle something um, because the science is just not there yet. Now that doesn't mean that a year down the road, there won't be some good data um, that comes out and supports that, but we're just not there yet um, from, from that standpoint there. All right. Um, I had a question that came in that said, I've been making better food choices, but I'm not losing weight. What is going on? I know that can be so frustrating. I mean, I really and truly do. I know when you feel like you're putting in the work and doing the things that uh, that maybe your healthcare provider has asked you to do or you've heard us talk about uh, here on the radio and you're not seeing results, it can, it can be just really kind of depressing and make you want to give up and go back to the way you were eating before. But I think we need to, to talk about some kind of diet sabotagers that are that are out there they're healthy um and uh, we can consume them but overconsumption of those things can really sabotage a diet and those are going to be things that are um, while containing a lot of nutrients also contain a lot of calories per bite and so the two biggest culprits that I see um, actually the three biggest culprits that I see when working with individual um, clients on weight loss is nuts avocado and olive oil right those three things while independently are healthy ingredients 
ints, right? They are a lot of calories for a small amount. So it doesn't mean we can't use those or can't eat those. But if weight loss is our des- is our desired outcome, then we've got to be careful about how much of that we use, right? Um, about a quarter of a cup of nuts is about, depending on the nut, somewhere between 160 to 180 calories for a quarter of a cup. Now, that's not a lot of nuts. That is a very small amount of nuts. And so if you just kind of have a, a can of nuts or a bag of nuts that you're just kind of reaching into and snacking instead of maybe reaching for chips, which way to go. Absolutely. I'm so glad you've ditched the chips as your snack choice. Um, overconsumption of those nuts may be kind of keeping you from from running a calorie deficit and losing weight there. Um, so it's often a good idea to, to mix those things. So take your that's the like making my own trail mix, right? So I take a quarter of a cup of nuts, I take a quarter of a cup of dried fruit, and I take a quarter of a cup of some kind of um, like whole grain cereal. I like Power O's, they're made with beans, um, those kinds of things. And I mix them all together uh, in a little um, little mason jar. And that's my, my little snack mix that I have there. That way I'm still not reaching for things like chips, um, but I'm also filling my belly up on uh, some lower calorie uh, options or have a piece of fruit with those nuts. When you snack, stir them into some yogurt, something like that, that's going to allow you to fill up a little bit more and not consume so many calories from those nuts. Um, So one of my favorite like kind of prescriptions that I write is nuts, one quarter cup or two tablespoons of nut butter maximum per day. Um, so you just kind of have to think think through those things a little bit there. Um, avocado um, is a, another great way to get off some of the more saturated fat items like mayonnaise. Adding some mashed up avocado to your sandwich can be a great way to still give you that kind of creamy texture that you're looking for without that, that you know, super amount of saturated fat from mayonnaise. But avocados can be Um, A a big calorie bomb as well, depending on the size of your avocado, about a half of an avocado is somewhere, again, around, um, you know, 150 to 170 calories there. And so if you're consuming, you know, a whole avocado every day, then that's going to add up and be maybe a a diet sabotager there. So just think about it Um, and maybe not every day or maybe do a quarter of an avocado, those types of things. And then oil, right? In particular, olive oil, because we've been told and told and told that olive oil is heart healthy, right? Um, But too much of anything, even a a healthier item is not, uh, not going to help us when we lose weight. So one tablespoon of any oil, right? Olive oil, canola oil, avocado oil, grapeseed oil, any of those oils, um, one tablespoon, which is not a lot of oil, guys, is 14 grams of fat and 120 calories. So whenever I first look at a recipe and I see that it starts, like I was reading one the other day that started with two to four tablespoons of olive oil, like all my brain could think was, oh my gosh, we just dumped in 28 to, you know, 50 something, 56 grams of fat on this vegetable, right? So we turned a very low calorie food item like a vegetable into a pretty high calorie item by the liberal addition of oil there. Um, So I tend to only use um, oils like that when I'm really trying to get a specific flavor. Like I really want to taste that olive oil. So maybe I've a drizzle on top of something that I'm finishing. 
Um, but if I'm actually going to saute a veggie or some or a grain or something like that, then I'm going to start either with a very, very small amount, like a teaspoon of oil, um, or I'm not going to use any at all. And I'm going to do a water saute. If you do follow me over on Facebook, I have several videos up of the water saute process or the stock saute process so that you can see what that looks like, but you can still get your veggies nice and soft as well as uh, browned up by not using oil there. So those are kind of the three things to kind of stop in and think about um, that could be kind of sabotaging your weight loss efforts. If you're consuming a lot of those kind of higher calorie um, for smaller amount foods, one that, Definitely, I don't put that much into a health food category, but can also be um, keeping you from losing weight is cheese. Um, now, I know that that will make a large chunk of people mad at me because cheese is a very passionate topic and people love their cheese. And guys, cheese is yum. Like I like cheese too, um, but it doesn't meet my health goals. So I try not, you know, I don't eat it. Um, about a quarter of a cup of cheese is all we need of that as well. Um, cheese is about 70% fat and not of the heart healthy fat variety. So adding that um, in large amounts to your food is going to really, really increase the ca caloric content of that food, especially think about building a salad, right? You start with, um, you know, some, some greens on the bottom. And then if we add um, you know, chicken and cheese and bacon bits and boiled egg, which are pretty, you know, pretty, some pretty common things on our salad, or maybe it's a chef salad and you've got ham and turkey and cheese and all that kind of stuff on there. All of those animal products added together um, are going to be a lot of fat and a lot of calories. So I see people consuming, um, you know, salads, trying to get, you know, get healthier, um, but make sure the bulk of that salad is actually fruits and veggies and less amount on the animal um, animal uh, items there. I usually ask people if they're if they're doing four, right? So if we're doing, you know, chicken, egg, bacon bits and cheese, can we cut two of those off, right? Like what are the two that you think you wouldn't miss as much on that salad? Some people are pretty doggone dedicated to all four of them. And so I'll ask maybe just one, can you, can we think, can we just drop one off of there and see, see how things go there? But cheese can very, very quickly add up and, um, and really sabotage that weight loss effort there. If you are going to choose a cheese, I do recommend choosing a um, a bolder flavored cheese because you have to, you, you can use less while still getting the flavor, right? So American cheese is pretty bland tasting. So you have to add a lot of it to a particular um, recipe in order to, to feel like you can taste the cheese. Whereas a sharp cheddar is going to be a much bolder taste. And so you're going to use less cheese to get that cheesy flavor. Um, things like uh, feta and blue cheese and Parmesan. And again, that sharp cheddar, um, those are bolder flavored cheeses. And so those would be my picks if I was just trying to switch someone from, um, you know, from an American or, a, um, you know, just a mild cheddar type of thing and get them to cut back on cheese. But I would love it if you would just ditch that cheese all together, but one step at a time. 
I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we've been answering some Facebook questions today, and there have been some good ones that have been coming in. But if you have a question for us, anything health and wellness related, um, I'm happy to take that today. We're in the last segment of the show. So if you do want to get on the air and talk with us, now's the time. That number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Um, the, I did have a question that just came in actually by private message that asked about sunscreen and what's the best sunscreen as we start to enter these summer months. And so I think we need to take a little step back and uh, talk about the fact that sunscreen is not just for the summer, that we've got uh, rays coming down from the sun all year long, even when it's not bright outside, even when it's overcast. And so um, some if we're going to be outside for prolonged periods of time, even when it's not in the um, in the summer, um, uh, sunscreen can be an important part, especially um, for your face. Um, your, your ears, the, the, the backs of your ears. And then if you're, you spend a lot of time in your car, right. And you kind of lean your arm on the, the, by the window of that car, the sun coming in from that window, um, can be pretty intense on that um, skin there. So using, um, some sunscreen year round is a great idea, But how do we pick sunscreens? What do we want to look for? All those kinds of different things. Well, we want to pick a sunscreen that has both UVA and UVB protection. And what does that mean? Well, those are the different um, kind of um, rays that come from the sun. And, you know, we used to say, well, we only worry about this one or we only worry about this one. But they're doing two different things, right? So one of them is more responsible for the sunburns and the skin damage. And when when we want to think about skin damage, think about um, aging more quickly. You know, that's uh, something that a lot of us focus on is, you know, uh, more wrinkles and lines around our face. Well, the more unprotected sun exposure we have, the more likely we are to have that damage to the deeper um, parts of our our skin layers that cause an increase in those wrinkles. Um, So if you don't want wrinkles, then sunscreen is one one way to help uh, with that. The other type of ray is the one that's more 
responsible for um, the development of skin cancers. So you want to make sure that you're getting a, um, a sunscreen that protects UVA and UVB. Now they come in a variety of SPFs, right? And SPF stands for sun protection factor. And when you're choosing one, uh, we want to go for a 30 or higher. I personally choose a 50, um, but a 30 or higher is where we want to go there. Um, it doesn't the higher doesn't always mean better. Uh, a lot of times people think that, you know, if I just put, you know, SPF 75 on, then I don't have to put it on. But once that's not really not really how it works. Um, so whatever you pick, you're going to have to reapply it depending on, you know, whether you're sweating, whether you're getting in and out of the water, those different kinds of things there. Um, but about a 30 to a 50 is, um, is appropriate, but at least a 30 there. Okay. Um, and we want to put it on before we go out. I see a lot of people um, kind of go to the beach, sit down, and then start to to lather up their sunscreen. And that's we're already a little tardy to the to the application process by that point. So when you're still in your room or before you go out for your day, that's the time to apply that sunscreen and let it soak in um, before you go outside. Okay, and you really want to apply a good amount. Okay, about an ounce or so, which is about the size of um, a golf ball um, to, you know, I kind of do that for the front and then do that for the back as well. And then you've got to reapply those things. Um, the rate at which you reapply is going to depend on whether you're going, whether you're getting in and out of the water, um, whether you're sweating, those other kinds of things. Um, but about every two hours is the general recommendation for that. Um, but if you're using a spray sunscreen, which I know a lot of folks are using because doesn't your hands don't get as, as icky, it can be easier to apply, especially little kids running around, that kind of stuff. Um, but it usually does need to be reapplied more often than a, a, a cream-based um, sunscreen because it just washes off or sweats off easier. Um, so, you know, about every... 60 to 90 minutes, you kind of need to be putting, uh, putting some of that back on there. Um, and then we want to think about things that we're not going to put sunscreen on, but that still need to be protected like our lips. Okay. So a lip balm or a chapstick that has some SPF um, protection in it, um, is another really good, useful addition. A lot of lipsticks and things for women now have SPF built into them, but just grabbing um, a lip balm or a chapstick that has an SPF of 30 or higher in it is a good idea. Um, don't forget about the top of your head. If you have ever had a sunburn in the top of your head, you know it itches and peels and is not a cute look. So a hat um, with a wide brim to keep uh, the top of your head from burning as well as some shade on your face is a good idea. Um, but at least, um, you know, at least a, a cap to cover the top of your head, um, as well as sunglasses that have UV protection built in them as well. Um, the sun's lights um, bouncing off of water or snow or any of these kinds of things can be very damaging to the eyes. So adding the um, 
sunglasses as well, um, had a tip that just came in that says sunscreen on your feet. Yes, that is an often overlooked place. And then you wind up with a very gnarly flip flop tan on your feet where you where you forgot. And it's pretty painful as well um, if you forget that area and you get a sunburn on the top of your foot. So don't forget areas like that. Um, the elbows I often see as well, the back of the neck and the um, the edges of the ears um, are really um, places that people don't put a lot of attention onto, but um, I see get burned very, very frequently and increase that rate um, of premature aging, but skin cancer as well. If you have a lump or a bump that you're just not sure about, go to your local dermatologist and get that checked out. Ask for a full body scan um, and or full body survey and let them take a look at, at anything that you, uh, especially areas that you can't get to or look at and see um, so that we can catch these things early. Um, other things you can do is try to avoid the brightest parts of the day, which is usually about 10 in the morning till about two or three in the afternoon is when the sun's rays are the strongest. And so if you can avoid those times, that is good. And remember that those rays are still shining down even when it's overcast outside. So don't think that that means you don't need the sunscreen. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app.